0: Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts.
1: Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. The Team Never Quit podcast is sponsored by Navy Federal Credit Union. Navy Federal can help you get started on your next home improvement project. Learn more at NavyFederal.org. Our members are the mission.
2: This is the Team Never Quit Podcast.
1: Don't so buckle up, buttercup. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Team Never Quit Podcast. It's a beautiful day here in Texas. The weather is perfect, I think. It's not too cold, not too hot. And uh, if you've got new year plans, maybe new goals for the year, I saw a Pretty crazy article this morning that says Oscar Meyer is looking for new Wiener Mobile drivers. So, if you're looking to try something new in the New Year, New York markets, oh, well, well, I know you definitely. like to drive that, you know, that RV. Y'all took that cross country trek. That
3: <laughs> would be awesome. <laughs> you could drive a hot dog van.
1: You can drive a hot dog. Okay, so would you
2: drive the hot dog van if the inside was all decked out and they let you use it for free to do your vacation, just as long as you advertise for them?
1: There, see, that's that's a good. It's about trade, yeah.
2: Hey, but hey, if I'll borrow your vehicle, you can wrap it in your deal, and I'll use it on my no, trip. No, it
3: looks like a hot dog.
2: My point exactly. <laughs> oh, like, I <laughs> know which one it is. We ran into that sucker
1: at the Alamo.
3: Yeah, yeah, we saw it at the Alamo.
1: Oh gosh! All right. Well, Patreon question of the day for you guys: Would you rather be able to speak any language fluently, or be able to communicate with animals?
3: Is it the same thing. No. I would rather I say to
0: answer that. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, probably animals because they're always observant. They're always around and they see things that most people do not. And they also are in, like my dog. I mean, he knows what's going on just by the tone of the voices. So I think the ability to talk to animals would be more important. Than the ability to speak to a specific individual in a specific language.
3: I think I agree with that because even we've traveled abroad a lot, and you can always basically understand what someone's saying for the most part. Um, so, to be able to speak to animals, I think would be really, really cool. Oh, sure. Well,
0: just cons- if you got a dog or a cat, just consider what they see. Mm-hmm. but they can't talk about. Yeah. I mean, Some people have dogs in their bedroom. I mean, what do you want? <laughs> I appreciate they don't talk back, okay?
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're amazing.
3: Yeah. Marcus is kind of like the animal whisperer. I tell you, yeah,
2: I'd rather have that, that ability, too. Yeah, because here's why. Uh, humans on, on, on our meanest animal form, and when there's no discipline or anything like that, if you look over and somebody has the ability to control a lion... Or a cape buffalo, or something that'll eat you or kill you. Mm-hmm. All humans will fall
0: in line. Yeah, that—that's just the way it is. Well, and you, I feel if like you're you- walking across the Serengeti. You need to know who's hunting you. <laughs> that's right.
3: Yes. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's right.
1: Because it, it feels different, and it is different, for sure. Yeah,
3: for sure. Okay, well that was our Patreon. That's a great
1: Patreon question. Hey, check it out. Patreon.com slash Quit. You can ask your questions, you can get access to some exclusive gear, and definitely join that amazing community that allows us to put the show together every single week. So thank you guys, Patreons, uh, for all you do to support the show. We've got a guest that's almost unbelievable on the show today. Keith Nightingale is a retired Army colonel who served two tours in Vietnam with Airborne and Ranger units. He commanded Airborne Battalions in both the 509th Parachute Infantry Regiment and the 82nd Airborne Division. He later commanded both the 175th Rangers and the 1st Ranger Training Brigade. He was a member of the Iran Rescue Attempt in 1981 and served with several classified organizations. And to top it off, he's also an author. He's the author of Phoenix Rising. Keith, welcome to the show, sir.
0: My pleasure to be here. Fire away.
3: All right. Well, this is one of those things that...
2: You can't even read your bio because of how... I had to pick highlights. Well, no, no, exactly. <laughs> when, when, when someone's bio starts reading like radio instructions, that's right. Because like there's the so real many fast acronyms, talk. yeah, <laughs> <there's> <laughs> so many abbreviations and acronyms. You'd have somebody in the high high in the military when you read this. So I I, I just want to hear if you just back this up.
3: Can you tell us, yeah, like about? I want to know
2: where you came from. Yeah, where God I mean, puts you down here? Wait, what
0: state? Well, uh, let me see. You're asking how my experience or why I got involved in the military. I'm asking
2: where you were stuff. born and, and your background <laughs> on your family, how you,
0: All right,
2: <laughs> I, I want to go um, all the way back. Like mom and dad, what'd they do?
0: My, my, well, my family has been, uh, had some association with the military, uh, since the pilgrims, literally, uh, with John Alden. Uh, and we've always had some member of the family, uh, male members, participate in whatever wars the country went through. Uh, Daniel Manton, who is a direct relative of mine. My name's Keith Manton Nightingale. Uh, Daniel Manton was a colonel for Washington in the Rhode Island uh, militia, and he did the recon for Washington before he sieged New York City. Uh, He also raised the number of units uh, for Washington during the Revolutionary War. Uh, my great, great grandfather, uh, was a Lieutenant quartermaster, uh, at Hilton Head for the Union Army, died of malaria, excuse me, yellow fever, uh, and my great, great uncle, uh, was with Buford on day one at Gettysburg. Uh, past that, uh, my great uncle, uh, was a doctor in World War I, the only doctor to win a Distinguished Service Cross. Uh, my grandfather drove an ambulance for the French Army uh, in Verdun. My grandmother was a nurse uh, at the military hospital. Y'all yeah, were in Paris. Verdun? Say again? Oh, go. I'm, I'm just... Go, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. He's in awe. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, my father uh, was a advisor to the Chinese... Uh, in World War II, uh, was still well, uh, and I'm the, the product of them, if you would, uh, so I come from a long line of kind of, I call it disassociated military, because none of them were professional. They went in, you know, there was a war, they did their thing, and they went home, and they did whatever, you know, they did. I'm the only one actually in our entire family history that I know of that made the Army a career, uh, But I enjoyed it. I was supposed to be a lawyer. That was my grandmother's plan. Uh, (laughs) And after my first tour, she kept lobbying me to, you know, go to Stanford Law and, you know, get out of this military stuff. You've done your bit. And I just thought about it a while and said, no, this is something I really like. Uh, You know, with the people I was with and what we were doing, uh, it was just a... Uh, real draw, if you would. And so I decided to do that, and I've never regretted it.
3: I wouldn't either with all of your accomplishments.
0: Brothers or sisters? Uh, No, I'm an only child. My parents were old and had arguments.
2: (laughs) Well, I came from one of them families too, Uh, Okay, so... How'd that go? What what actually spun you up to join the Army? Because sign it up and then uh,
0: your well, family. I'll tell you that. Uh, because of our family history, uh, it was preordained that I would go into the Army and serve some time and then go out and do whatever the rest of my life was going to be all about. So when I went to college, I signed up for ROTC. Which is what my father had done when he was at Stanford, and then I kind of liked it because I had a military background. You know, I was an Army brat. You know, I grew up at Fort Lewis and you know these other places, military uh, places. Saw my dad off to Korea, so I kind of understood what was going on here. And then when I was in college, Claremont at that time, Claremont Men's College in Claremont, California. Uh, I was part of the ROTC organization, uh, and I kind of liked it. And then it was clear that Vietnam was going to happen. I mean, this was like 63, 64 it was building up. And I've done a lot of studying of history. History was kind of my thing, and particularly military history. And I decided I wanted to be in the 82nd Airborne Division. Because if I was going to go to war, I wanted to go to war with the best, you know, General Gavin and General Ridgway and Normandy, D-Day, all that stuff, a very magnetic attraction to me. And the only way that I could go to the 82nd was to get a regular Army commission as opposed to a reserve commission. So I applied for a regular Army commission so that I could go to jump school and then go to the 82nd and I got it. And so I was the only graduate in Claremont uh, with a regular army commission. I went, commissioned ironically, on the 6th of June, 1965. Oh, nice. Uh, Immediately signed up to go to Fort Benning. By that time, I had been married as a junior. Uh, Between my junior and senior year, I got married. We had a kid. Uh, So I have a wife. A baby and a parakeet, <laughs> and we all we all load up in the. I uh, hey, write that Corvair. combo down
2: just in case you run across it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good start of a joke right there.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I know this guy. We, we all load up that. in my Chevy Corvair and head to Fort Benning, uh, where I go to the basic officer school, jump school, and uh, then go to the 82nd, and then they send me back as an 82nd guy to Ranger School. Then I come back to the 82nd where I then got orders to go to Vietnam as an advisor. Uh, with so the, with even though range. you
2: signed up, you still got an advisor role. That doesn't tell you that your family's got a particular job down here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. The Corvair,
0: was it convertible? Uh, it was not. Uh, but it had, for my for our situation, uh it was great you know it was an air-cooled car huh. uh air-cooled engine uh and it actually drove fast uh stick shift with a clutch two door or four say again two doors or four uh, i had two doors two doors right uh but you know for a a wife a baby and a parakeet that was <laughs> you know pretty much all we needed we didn't have a whole lot of junk
3: yeah that's awesome
0: and so that's sort of how it got started. I mean, I I spent about 18 months, a little less than 18 months in the 82nd. I actually was the only second lieutenant company commander in the 82nd, not because I was great, but simply because all the captains had been sent to Vietnam. Uh, so I was sort of the last man standing. When they uh, sent you over there. That was my call it, call it my initiation into the army. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah, I remember my time over there with them. The 82nd has a sign at the, at the front of the base. If they can go 82 days without anybody dying, they get an extra day of liberty. And they never do it.
3: <laughs> in war? No,
2: no, in peacetime.
3: Oh, really? Oh,
2: the 80s, man, they're the crazy. You want to see what an inside of a can whoop-ass looks like? It's my favorite poster. Is <laughs> when they drop the ramps, and, and you look inside those, those dirty hercs, those, those 130s, and it's got the 82nd in there all crammed in. A bunch of badasses. And they do these mass exits out in a, in a blue sky, like just these hundreds of parachutes of dudes coming down. It's something to watch them hit a, hit, a, hit a field, man.
0: We want to give the enemy the maximum opportunity to give his life for his country.
2: That's right. Wow. That's right. Dude, if they don't shoot you, man, when they come in <laughs> squashing like that, that's the craziest thing I'd ever seen uh, when I saw y'all do that for the first time. Okay, so when you got sent to Vietnam, how long were you over there?
0: Uh, I was in Viet. This was... I arrived in April of 1967. I left in May of 1968. You, uh, that included that offensive in, uh, in Vietnam. I started out as the deputy uh, senior advisor. Captain Al Shine was the senior advisor. Uh, and then he left in early December and I became the senior advisor, which I was throughout the rest of my tour there. What was that like for you? V- <laughs> well, <Vietnam>. exciting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it wasn't exactly deer hunting. What uh, I joined them as I said in April. Uh, I had my first real action, purely by chance, in late April on a uh, patrol in the Rung Sat, which was this swampy area south of Saigon, up the Saigon River. A lot of VC, uh, and then later on. It uh, got really serious. Uh, 20, Twenty-four June, nineteen sixty-seven. Uh, we, we as a battalion, four hundred and fifty people, went in uh, to this LZ up north in what's called War Zone D near the Dong Nai River, north of Swanlock, which was where we were at, uh, and we were supposedly chasing a, a VC company. Well, it ended up being a well-laid ambush by two VC main force regiments, uh, in the course of about less than 24 hours, uh, we went from 450 people to 32 people, uh, later after the battle was over, we collected a total of about 150 out of those 450. Uh, so that was kind of what I call a very exciting day for me. Oh yeah. Uh, And then... Later on, we went down to, to reconstitute because we were basically decimated. Uh, down to Kuchi, that area in uh, south of Saigon, uh, where we brought in a lot of new replacements and did training and all that. Uh, had a totally different environment VC villages, booby traps, sniping, totally different kind of war. Up in Swanlock, where I was at, it was very conventional. I mean, you went after companies and battalions. Yeah. Down in Coochie area, it was, you know, little, little groups of people, two or three or four, but they were working at a distance and they never really stood and fought with you, but they would whack you from, you know, 500 meters and you never saw them. So it was very difficult situation. Uh, <clears throat> and then later on, of course, during TET, that was very conventional. Uh, we had... Uh, half of the battalion at Swanlock defending the airfield, and the other half had left earlier to go down to a place called Berea and work with the Australians to clear the province capital down there, which had been taken over by the VC during Tet. That was really tough fighting, Uh, very urban warfare, uh, completely different from what I'd had before. And we finally married up with the battalion, the rest of the guys down at Berea, uh, and then cleared that area, and then went into Saigon uh, and did uh, the clearing of Cholon up there toward the Y Bridge, and then over to Benoit. And that was like three weeks plus of just heavy grinding combat, very different from what we had had before. But very similar to what you say you might have seen at Stalingrad or Bastogne.
2: Oh, Vietnam guy, they didn't even begin to talk about y'all's wars. <laughs> I I started studying military history as like really getting into it. Y'all's especially because it was all always ambushes. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it, it, it was a terrorist war and a conventional one. You had both sides. Mm-hmm. I mean, but if you, all, it, it, you, both, you had, both of them you
0: had the full deck of cards all That's the it. time. All the time. You never knew what it was till you till it happened.
2: Till they stuck your ass in it. And I mean, the death toll on y'all and how fast it was. That was the craziest thing, too. Plus, they were rotating guys in and out. And just to... Well, I can't believe y'all made it through all that.
3: Yeah. Well, then, not to mention, like, the the welcoming home wasn't great, so... Oh,
2: that's the worst. We all had it the worst. Yeah. Thank God y'all took that for us, because y'all made it the best for us when we came back. Uh, we had a pure, straight-up terror war, and, and...
0: Well, yeah, the, the anti-war folks focused on the soldiers and didn't really focus on the people that sent them there, if you right. Right. Uh yeah. So the soldiers became kind of the touch point for people's frustration and anger, which was totally misplaced. Sure.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we just awful. went there
0: sort of because we had to, had to, <laughs> you right. know, my, for, my, yeah, my, you had to. tour, my, my, uh, my rifle company on my second tour in the 101st, was composed what I call the dodgeless drafters. <laughs> they couldn't dodge the draft, you know, for whatever reason, they got caught up in it. You know, they either didn't graduate or they were about to go to jail or, you know, they didn't have a future or whatever. So they got drafted uh, and but they were great soldiers. I mean, they were peaceniks, they were beatniks, they were anti-war to the core, but they were hellacious in combat. Because they understood that that's what they needed to do to survive. And that's what they wanted to do. So, you know, people denigrate the folks that were in Vietnam. Well, I saw them, you know, at all levels. And, you know, they were a superb part of our population. So we don't have
2: that. Mm -hmm. I didn't get to see that type of human. I I, I never got to see that because they didn't make us go do that. We all volunteered to go in. So the, 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 man, the lions and tigers and bears that I always ate with, Man, they kind of trained us in a different route. And I haven't heard anybody say it like that. I mean, there is literally people who hate violence so much that it it, it drives them. When they're the ones that get put in it, they fight the worst. They're the meanest son of a gun you ever met. And when you see them on the backside when they get back home, you would had no idea they would have been in there because they hated it so much. But yeah, I, I never had that.
0: They clearly understood if they were in the middle of the A show <laughs> that they better have their act together. Holy to shit, right? And be hauled, you know, hauled off in a box. Yeah.
2: God, that's got to be a fear. Like I, like you could, I wouldn't even know. Imagine that.
0: I mean, you don't it, getting fear, stuck in that. You focus.
2: Yeah. How
1: yeah, about your that? Your fear
3: man? turns into focus. Cause you don't have any way out. Yeah. Well, and it's focused on survival. Yeah. And go, getting home.
1: How soon after you got in did you decide? All right, this is going to be a career.
0: Uh, when I came back from my first tour, like I said, you know, my, my family was lobbying me to get out and go to law school. And I thought about that for a while and said, no, this is what I want to do.
2: Was it kind of some, like the times back then when, when you would have been rotating out into the world comparable to now, was
0: it kind of chaotic with the war and everything? Well, yeah, I mean, there was pressure, uh, you know people people would approach me you know they once they understood hey i just got back from vietnam blah 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 they they acted with great sympathy you know like i was at a funeral you know with, with some relative uh it wasn't a thank you and it wasn't a gee what it was like it was you know oh fine you know i'm sorry you know blah blah you know that's basically the way it was so i felt kind of isolated from our society Uh, I liked what I was doing in the military with the people I was at. I felt proud for what I was doing. Um, I didn't have any apologies. So, you know, when I came home, I saw two groups of people, my kind of people and a lot of the rest. And I just decided to hang with my people.
2: Yeah.
3: I can see that. Yeah. Like,
2: oh, and they make it easy to do that too. When they're yelling, I mean, that's kind of. It's not a no-brain, especially if you put your life on the line with everybody. Yeah, well, that's one I, thing in the uniform. When I man.
0: returned, um, I uh, was assigned to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo a University, oh, that's a place. where we live, <laughs> and San it Louis had Louis. a big ROTC detachment. And actually, they were very conservative, very pro. I mean, we had like 400 cadets, and most of them were in the the county sheriff's reserve dep- uh, organization. <laughs> And they deployed to all of these other California universities like UCSB that were having these massive riots. They just loved it because they got a chance to actually deploy and exercise. Uh, But all around us was this tremendous, you know, student uprest and draft card burning and flag burning and, you know, counselor yelling and screaming at the students. So... You know, I was just, I wanted to get out of there and go back to Vietnam and kill communists. You know, I just get me out of this place. <laughs> yeah. All
2: right. So when you rotate back from Vietnam, what? When
3: the ha- war was over? Yeah. What,
2: next step. What, what was that like?
0: When I left ROTC, I went to uh, Fort Benning for what's called the advanced course for captains. And then was immediately shipped out to the 101st, uh, where I joined. This was 1970. And I was given a rifle company uh, out in the a which I had for almost six months, Uh, going around a whole variety of jobs, very interesting, Uh, primarily as an independent company rather than as part of the battalion, per se, which I enjoyed. Uh, And then I was uh, you know, they always kick you out. You get six months and then you gotta leave so somebody else can take your job. Right, yeah. I became the G2 operations officer for the 101st, which was really interesting because it opened me up to all the all-source intelligence, the humint, we had the Mac Sog guys and Combat Command North. Uh, we had all of the sensor strings. I was responsible for uh <clears throat> monitoring the ho chi minh trail between vietnam laos and uh north vietnam and i also had all the arc targeting responsibilities in icor uh, for the b-52s so i had a really fun day every day putting all this stuff together uh and seeing what was going on so it was very educational very creative and i just enjoyed the hell out of it <laughs> Then I came back as part of the 173rd to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and we became the uh, Airborne Brigade for the 101st. Uh, and from there, uh, I joined the First Ranger Battalion when it was created uh, at Fort Stewart because the battalion commander, Colonel Luer, uh, was also a battalion commander in the 101st. That's where we met. So he picked me to be joining to join. Uh, the Ranger Battalion when it was first created.
3: That is so cool.
0: (sighs) Timing's everything, right? Hey, I have been a big believer that life is luck and timing. Oh, (laughs) that sounds made up. Uh,
2: That first part, I mean, the fact that you stepped into this, and mainly because I've had to walk in the streets and and all that stuff that you were around to create. That's the best part about running into y'all. That's why I get such a kick out of this, man, just hearing... Hearing all those stories, but I went over my time. I'm a bastard. I'm an Army brat, bastard. So I'm an 18 Delta, and I, I had more fun running around with the Rangers and Green Berets, and and that, and oh, up in Benning and Bragg too.
3: Yeah, where was your uh, 18 Delta training? I was in Bragg for that. Bragg. But Benning is
2: our airborne school, so we I, I got and I got full Binnings too because I was there in the summertime. I think I graduated June 6th. For, You're you know, an 18 Delta. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, sir. And. uh, which I love. I put more work into getting that done than I almost did my trident. It was that hard. It was that difficult for me. So, okay, <laughs> uh, it, it paid off though when we got into the war, because I mean you kind of recognize your own pretty quick. Absolutely. Well, um, I, I, I'm sorry I didn't mean to interrupt. So, because here's the deal: if you're, I tell these young guys this. I'm like, hey man, if you're real squared away, your your department won't let you leave. Mm-hmm. But if you're a shit bag, then they won't send you away. <laughs> They won't send you somewhere cool to do something else. So there's actually a happy medium you got to hold in the military. It's a it's a it's a fine line. So when you run across guys who have these these ups man, like this one, I'm sorry to keep bringing that up, but you got to understand this kind of it's this just cool.
0: Yeah. Well, like I said, it's it's luck and timing. I can guarantee you that there is nothing that I did that I planned for before it occurred. It just sort of happened. I stumbled into it or events were such and I was there and that's what I did. But there was zero prior planning to get me to anything that I did in my career. It was basically, like I said, luck and timing.
2: All right. So, okay. So, Vietnam, you're still... Yeah. That well, winds down. You the Then you go into the agency, right? Say again? You started working for the agency after the military, uh, through the Army or after?
0: Uh after I left the army or before or what we're trying to figure out the to figure out I worked for the agency. Uh well, I gotta be careful here. Um <laughs> when I was in the army in what was called ODSO, right after the Iran rescue, we had a special organization set up to develop and resource all of these special ops units you see now that did not exist during the iran rescue only delta existed we brought in a whole bunch of new stuff task force 160 the the aviation guys oh yeah uh what was then called fog field operations group which is now isa the secret army of northern virginia and a number of other kind of special select, unique organizations. We did a lot, a lot of stuff outside the United States, Latin America and the Middle East. During those periods, uh, we would kind of transition back and forth from being sheet dipped in the agency to going back to wearing a uniform, oh, yeah, check just depended that. on the circumstances and the requirements.
2: Right.
0: Uh, and then later on, when I was a civilian, uh, I did some work with them and for them also. Yeah.
2: Well,
3: right. we just
0: nobody
2: get... really works for the agency. So <laughs> I've always heard kind of <laughs> you're just with them or away from
0: them.
3: But that wasn't until later. You still had a lot of time in the Army. Um, oh, yeah. From what we uh, were talking about. We,
0: from the first, uh, when I was through with my tour at the first Ranger Battalion. I went to Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth. From there, I was assigned to the 509th Airborne in Vicenza. Uh, During that three-year period, I was the executive officer, the deputy commander, and the battalion commander. Uh, The battalion commander had been relieved for a couple of reasons, and I was the uh, battalion commander for about eight months uh, to include taking him through an RTEP in Germany at that point uh i came back assigned to the pentagon uh i was in what was called demo department uh the of uh demo Des ops uh which was the operations side of the army we did things sent people off in the world and you know did all of the kind of day-to-day operations of the large army and at that was the point that the uh, the iran uh embassy went down uh my responsibility in desk ops was the middle east africa desk uh, which at that time was kind of a low slow no big deal uh thing other than the beirut lebanon problems we had uh general vaught was the uh director of demo desk ops and he was uh assigned by General Meyer, the chief staff of the army, to be to create a rescue force for the embassy because we had nothing. Uh, when the embassy went down, the uh, Joint Chiefs had a meeting in the tank and looked at their options. Well, option A was the nuclear strike. Option B was send in the 82nd Airborne. There was nothing in between. So it was clear that there was some form of lower order. uh capability had to be developed. And at that point, General Meyer told him, we need to create a new force, and I'll provide the commander, in which case this General Vaught. And the base units would be Delta, which has just finished their uh, uh, evaluation exercise and came online. Uh, General Vaught brought me up uh, to be part of the organization, I I wore a number of hats. We only had 32 people uh, from General Vaught on down. I was the J3 ground operations officer, which was a title that didn't mean anything because I was really the lowest ranking guy in the room. I was the organizational gopher.
2: Yeah, it sounds important, though. <laughs> yeah. I, that, that's how that title usually works. If it's real badass, that's the lowest ranking guy in there.
0: Uh, I can tell you that being the gopher was a great job because I got involved in everything. I gave the morning briefings and the afternoon briefings to all of the high muckety mucks who came in there every day, Secretary of Defense, the Service Chiefs, uh, Brzezinski from the uh, National Security Council, Ham Jordan from uh, Carter's office. And so I got to see all these people at work. And their how their minds worked, and you know whether they were good, bad, or indifferent. Yeah. Uh, and so you could see at the highest level how stu- how the sausage was made, if you would. Sure. And then we took that immediately back down to the field and said, "Hey, we got this new intel, and you got to turn left instead of turning right." So you know, I'd go down and brief Beckwith and his guys on the new deal. And then eventually we brought in the rangers, Dave Grange and his guys, C Company 175. You know, I'd be briefing them on what was going on. Uh, of course, we went out to the desert continuously to do the training. You know, we'd be out in the desert for a weekend and then we'd come back to the Pentagon, wear our Class A uniforms. And then we'd go back out into the desert in our fatigues and go shoot weapons. You know, oh. it's, you know, it was, so, you had this back and two made different up. worlds you know, all the time. How is
2: as much fun in the military? This, this is a recruiting poster here. This is why how you join. Just in case you can get in this, this kind of lifestyle, man. So
0: <laughs> then, the, you know, the rescue comes off. And, of course, it doesn't come off the way we planned. But that actually was a blessing in disguise. Uh, Whacking Bin Laden was a direct result of the failure at Desert One. If we had succeeded at Desert One, I am absolutely convinced, as I say in my book, Uh, that the service chiefs would have basically eliminated this special ops capability that was created. They didn't like it. They hated it. It was different. It was unconventional. They viewed it as high risk, low payoff, loose cannon on rolling deck, et cetera. And they wanted nothing to do with it. Well, the failure totally changed the equation because Carter said, hey, you guys got to go back in 10 days uh, in case we have an in extremis rescue requirement. We'll get whatever we can get, and we'll just take the casualties to do it. And so the other point he made was no resource constraints. We had resource constraints for the rescue because it had to be so secret. You know, Nobody could know about it. Sure. So we couldn't go into the general base and get goodies or put in new money to get stuff like sa- we have the only three satellite radios in the entire inventory, you know. Give you an example. Uh, there were no. What he's talking MDGs. about is people know where that stuff goes. Yeah. Like if you if you're trying uh, to you do know, something, all top the secret. kind of neat little toys didn't exist. Yeah. But when the when the rescue failed and we got the new orders, which was you have number one priority, whatever you want, dream it up, and we'll figure out how to make it happen. Oh. You got all the money you want. <laughs> you got all the people you want. Dang. Just go make something real that works. And that's when we grew. Like I said, we created Task Force 160. Uh no. we seriously upgraded the Air Force Special Operations Wing. Uh you know, and all these other things. But I can tell you the inst- the institutional establishments, the senior leadership and the civilian bureaucracy hated it. They would try to kill it at every opportunity, and we had to continually stuff them uh, when they tried to stuff us. And in that, we got Congress involved. Uh, a couple of us would go up on the hill back door brief the uh, ranking mem- uh, chairman and the ranking members of the hack and the sack and the SASC and the SAC. General, uh, Senator Nunn, Senator hey, Cohen, man. and they'd write laws. You know, <laughs> we say, we got a problem. You know, the Air Force won't do this. So they just write a law saying the Air Force will do this. Well, and Of course, you know, that doesn't make you a good friend of the chief of staff of the Air Force, but it does get us <laughs> airplanes on the ground. Yeah. So, you know, that's sort of the battles that we had to fight. Um, from there, I went to the 82nd to command 2505. Uh, took them to Grenada, uh, took the division back to Normandy for D-Day, one of my obsessions, uh, for the 40th anniversary. First time division had returned to Normandy. Uh, General Gavin met us on the ground uh, with like 12 busloads of vets who toured us around everywhere, gave us the battle staff oh, rides man. on the sites. How was wow, that? That's really was cool. that awesome? Uh, that was seriously awesome when you Man. when you are with General Gavin. I, I'll give you an example. Uh, on the fifth of June at Saint Maryglise, there was a big banquet in in the town itself. First time they'd had the the actual vets back to Saint Maryglise. Well, the town went all out, and we had this big banquet, uh, and I was sitting at the table. I was the commander of troops, and I was sitting at the table with General Gavin. And on the spur of the moment, I said, sir, would you give us, we're gonna do a staff ride tomorrow at Lafayette Bridge. Lafayette Bridge was kind of the penultimate battle the 82nd did in Normandy. And we had not planned to have him there. Uh, I hadn't thought of it. We were gonna have, uh, you know, another vet uh, do it. And he kind of looked at me and he said, well, if you can get me to Omaha Beach by nine, I have an appointment with Cronkite. Uh, I'll talk to you guys at 630. And he was still had, he was starting to get Parkinson's, you know, he was kind of shaky like that. And so I immediately went up and grabbed the gendarme major and said, can you get General Gavin from Lafayette Bridge to uh, Omaha Beach by nine? And he said, sure. And he, Uh, got his motorcycle corps all organized. Well, about 6.30 in the morning on the 6th of June, we're all at Lafayette Bridge, 300 troops, you know, all in their berets and their fatigues. And it's kind of rainy, you know, really kind of crummy weather. And this big green Mercedes pulls up and uh, door opens, uh, door opens, the guy uh, opens up the back door and there's General Gavin. Well, I'm looking at him and he's kind of hunched over, you know, like this, and he's got a little cane and he's got his beret on, red beret, and he's kind of hunched over and he's he's all shaky like that. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I made a horrible mistake. You know, I'm subjecting this guy to the weather uh, and his illness, and he's not going to be able to pull it off. He's going to be embarrassed and the troops are going to be embarrassed. You know, I'm thinking my career has come to an end and I just did something incredibly stupid. Well, he kind of looks up at me like that and he looks up beyond me and he sees all the troops all right right there. He gets out, stands up, walks to the troops and he is the commander at that location for an hour and a half. Mm. And he walked us through with crystal clarity what happened. And he, I mean, he was the commanding general. There's no doubt in your mind, not a hint of illness, not a hint of mental uh, issues whatsoever. And he walked, he briefed us on everything. And then he walked us actually down the road, stopping at each location to point out something to us was the most, one of the most incredible personal experiences (laughs) I'd ever had. And just how, the you know the strength the character and his resolution came through to overcome all the problems and issues that he had at the time. That's a tour guide through time. That, that, <laughs> yeah, you know, that that's amazing. That's really cool. It's a blessing to get
2: those. You don't ever that never happens.
3: Marcus and I had I've, I've got tears in my eyes because I'm thinking of uh, Marcus and I and a, a bunch of other people. We got to bring a World War II veteran, R.V. Bergen. He fought in the Pacific to Peleliu, the island of Peleliu, Orange Beach, and mm-hmm. uh, he that was his first time back, and this was in 2014.
2: Oh, and Marine, his, his 90 Marine. plus years old. Yeah. I mean, you could still shave with the crease in his pants. Yeah. He made yeah. sure, he I mean, he on point, like his gig line, belt buckle, I mean, the guy was on point.
3: Yeah, and we got to bring <laughs> him back and just see the emotion and everything that he had, and... We literally like got out on Orange Beach out of yeah. this little boat, and yeah. uh, and he gave us kind of that same story of everything that happened, and walked us through the jungle through Peleliu. You so, go to
0: the Umar Brogel.
3: I don't know that. No, Umar Brogel
0: Ridge. That was the key uh, terrain feature uh, at Peleliu. Oh, oh yeah. They, they oh the it, ridge. Yeah. They uh, called
3: uh, it the um, the Bloody Nose Ridge. Uh-uh.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay. Yes. So I was in the
2: middle. Yeah. And, and then the two left flanks. No, I didn't get yeah. up there. were 200 went in 7 mate or zero, or whatever it was, that crazy. It was
3: a crazy number Ooh. of people that died. No, we did go up there cuz we saw that anti-aircraft gun that was up on that ridge. Oh, okay. Yeah, they had that they still have it today, this yeah. huge anti-aircraft gun. Hey,
2: if anybody out there is looking for a vacation, if you like have an adventure. the it's a long <laughs> an adventure, not a vacation. It's 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 vacation when you get there. <laughs> it's austere. Right. Yes, yeah. sir. Very, very austere. It was one of the awesome. neatest moments. I mean, beautiful.
0: Dang,
3: yeah. But R.V. Bergen passed away a few years ago, but it makes me think of your experience. Obviously, that's.
0: Yeah. Well, that's why I have this obsession about Normandy. You know, I I read I was kind of fixated on it as a kid for whatever reason. Uh, so it always kind of stuck with me. I read a lot about it. And then, of course, when I got into the division, we had a lot of veterans there. 1965. The senior officer leadership were all World War II vets. Sure, all the you know senior NCOs were. So you're getting all these stories from the people who were actually there, and then vets would come filtering back, and uh, you know, like Gavin came back, Ridgeway came back, lots of old NCOs. and They come into the company, walk around, they just sit there and bullshit with you about you know what you're doing and what That's they awesome. did and how they did it. Uh, you know, it was just great professional learning experience, and then to actually have the vets lead us through these staff rides at Normandy, you know, Omaha Beach, Pointe-de-Hoc, Lafayette Bridge, Chef Dupont, Pont, Nouvelle saint Mary, you know, all these things. And they, they just sit there and walk, okay, this is what we did. And I was over here and Joe was over there and the gun was here and the Germans were here. You can see it all. You know, you, you get the human insights to it beyond. Oh, facts, yeah. You got what I call, the, you know, the faces and the voices that were really there that made the facts, you know, so much more uh, rewarding. Uh, and then after my retirement, I would go back every year to actually do the terrain walks for the active duty troops. And we would always have vets there at that time. You know, this is First time I was there was 1977, uh, you know, so we had a lot of vets, uh, but no celebrations. There was no big deal. It was just They were just there with their families wandering around, show them, show them where they were at. And then later on, uh, like beginning in the, for the 50th anniversary, it started to become something important. Uh, we have vets there and they, you know, I'd be taking, you know, like say 50 troops from the 82nd. We're standing on the ground and a couple of vets would be there and I asked them to talk about it. And they would just, you know, matter of fact, military conversation. They didn't restrain themselves. Yeah. And it was very, it was, was kind of unique because we'd have the active duty guys there. Then we have the vets. And the vets would talk about what occurred on the ground. You could see grounds not changed pretty much the way it was. Normandy is kind of the Arkansas of France, so it had a bit a lot of development going on there, and so you can see. That's it.
2: a great way to say that. Can I steal <laughs> that from you? The
0: Arkansas. Of France. It's yours. <laughs> I, I, I always, thank you. The, the the vets would talk, you know, about what they were doing. Very, you know, they weren't restrained because you know they were in a civilian society. They were back in the army, and so they would talk just like they were back in the army, and it was really you know, educational and you could see stuff you couldn't pick up from the books. And then later on, we'd be walking back and one of the family members would grab me and he'd say, I'd never known that. He's never said that before. We know more today than we had in the entire 30 years we've known him before.
2: How about that? You know, and
0: this was quite a common occurrence. So when I go back every year now, of course, there are no vets there. You know, I try to be a bridge between what the originals told me about what occurred on this ground and, uh, the actives today, and you can see the actives, man, it lights up their fire. Uh, the first day they're kind of, you know, what am I doing here? Where's the beer? You know, yeah. how long do I have to stay here? I, yeah. You know, the man, normal troop, troop attitude. <laughs> and then by the end That's of real. the second day they're, you know, I, I had an old platoon sergeant. We had like, I'm going to say at least eight deployments to the sandboxes and he was always kind of aloof, but at the end of the second day came up to me and he pulled me on the arm and I looked around to him and I said, yeah. And he said, sir, some shit happened here. Hmm. And you know, that, that, that was the kind of impact that it made on the active. So, you know, I, I consider kind of my worthwhile, uh, gift if you would on a continuing basis to the army as a whole
3: do you still go back
0: i go back every year yes
3: oh uh, i want to go
0: so we were at, that's
2: fine I, <laughs> I i missed the there's been a couple of chances
3: yeah we
2: were just in dc yesterday or the day before now that's and
3: so <laughs> like we were there for a week is what i was saying oh yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, visiting the memorials walking through we, we caught them at night but um just to see all the veterans Walking around there, not very many of them guys left or gals. Mm-hmm. I have a wasp in my neighborhood or in, uh, down the road from here. She, she's, yeah, she's awesome. She's 103. Yeah, I mean they're they're still around, but they're hard to find.
3: She was a wasp, right? In, yeah, oh, that's amazing. Okay, we're I, we're I, still taking we're taking. Yeah, a, like, i will sit here and talk to you. About, yeah, I
2: mean we're not even halfway through. What, what's yeah. The, all right, so.
0: Uh, <laughs> and none of your kids serve or are any of them joined? Got yeah, my my oldest son. Uh, was an 11B in the uh, Third Infantry Division. I I got two boys. The oldest one went, uh, like I said, was in the Third ID as an 11B, uh, and two girls. Uh, two boys and two girls. The second boy did not serve. He was he was he went to the University of Georgia and was primarily engaged in beer and girls.
2: That's. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. I feel like that's a part of life, especially at Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> Great a... institution of higher learning. Mm-hmm. Football. I go all day about that too. <laughs> yeah. Just learning. Just learning. <laughs> Just learning.
3: So after you did that with the um, 82nd Airborne, you're still in the military when you did that first trek. What fill us in on the rest of? Your, yeah, I mean, you did yeah. a
2: South America stretch. There's some stuff yeah. in here about Escobar. That was you on uh, that?
0: Yeah, oh. that was that came later. Uh, when I left the battalion in the 82nd, uh, I went to the 1st uh, Ranger Battalion, 175. I, I, I let, gave up command of 2505 and then uh, took over command of 175, uh, the Rangers. Uh, from there, I went to the Army War College. Uh, and from there, I went to the uh, Ranger Training Brigade. And from there, General Thurman and General Downing uh, took me down to uh, Southern Command uh, to set up an entirely new organization. Uh, acronym was DDN, which doesn't mean anything, but basically it was responsible for all the counter drug operations uh, of the United States in Latin America. Uh, I had a, uh, call it an intra-departmental organization. I had FBI, I had DEA, I had CIA, NSA, all of the services, to include the Coast Guard, uh, and we were responsible for monitoring all of the drug industry, if you would, in Latin America, and primarily had two basic, two get basic missions other than the big picture. One was to train uh, and support the host nation forces and their own inter-country strikes against drug forces. Right. You know, the, uh, the cocoa plantations, the processing plants, the druggy headquarters. Uh, we would train up, say, the Colombian, the Colombian forces, and then we would provide them the intel, we put them on board, the AWACS, which is actually provided by Customs, uh, and they would run a strike with all the support that we could give them short of actually troops on the ground. Uh, So we did that in Bolivia, uh, Colombia, Peru, and Ecuador, and to a little degree in Venezuela. Uh, The other thing we did, which became, again, luck and timing, was get Pablo Escobar. And so we created a task force uh, specifically focused to bring U.S. assets to support the Colombian government in getting Escobar, uh, we created, uh, an organization, uh, a police organization, uh, called the search block. Yeah, sure did. Them.
2: That's exactly what they were called.
0: <laughs> uh, we had a compound built for them. So the families could be there away from any attempt by the bad guys to pressure the families into flipping their dad. Uh, which is what they'd been doing before. Uh, so we had a whole village built up. You know, it had a church, schools, movie, bar, the whole thing. So the families could all be self-contained, the search block families. So they, the baddies couldn't get to them. Uh, we did a very thorough vetting job of all these uh, search block membership. Colonel Fernandez, super guy in charge. Uh, then we just started do, providing the Overwatch intel, Uh, with all of the U.S. intel assets, if you would. We would feed them, uh, feed that information to Fernandez. And we just had started with the, what I call the uh, onion skin approach. Uh, They were picking up a lot of cell phone traffic of his uh, surveillance guys and watchdogs and lesser lights uh, in Medellin. And so the search block guys would just go out there and whack them or capture them. And then suddenly Escobar's little organization got smaller and smaller and smaller. They started shooting each other because they figured everybody else was a snitch. So it had this kind of ongoing revolt to the point where Escobar was just had a very small organization uh, and he was pretty desperate and that just by chance was kind of the day that he decided to get on his cell phone and talk to his son which was a major mistake because the search block guys were already down there in the neighborhood uh and then the rest is history i was sitting in panama uh watching the whole thing we had a uh, our customs bird up up on top with a fleer watching wow. the whole thing go down oh, i
2: oh, oh i know I mean. that story that's yes so sir that's cool <laughs> That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Just going in and setting that up and, and peeling that back, like you said, like a, an onion. There's so many layers of that story that you just told us. If your kids don't know how cool you are, that's probably one of the coolest stories out there. <laughs> I mean, they, they still talk about the 80s and, and and Miami and Columbia and every all the men. What's that, Narco?
3: Yeah.
2: I like mean, just the, the, yeah. the, the shows that are coming out. That's the thing man you spent your whole life making all these stories and they't even I mean they're
0: barely coming out now.
3: Yeah, that's really cool. Thank
0: no, you for, for your service by the way. Pretty good. Uh, there's there are a lot of factual issues, but I mean, in terms of the atmosphere and the uh, conditions they worked under and the environment, it's pretty accurate. Facts are bad, the personalities are wrong, but the actual story is pretty good.
3: So you're sitting up top, I and mean, what was that like? Did you ever have a moment where you just kind of pinched yourself? Like, okay, I'm in Colombia, and we're running this. I've also been to Vietnam. Yeah, right. And I've, all of these
2: moments, which yeah. one's the one that's been like, hey,
0: that was.
3: Did you ever have that moment of just that? My life is very interesting <laughs> while it was in it.
0: No, I, I don't think you think about it at the time. It's kind of like getting shot at, you know, Uh you don't think about what might happen. You just do what you have to do.
1: Yeah. And it's only
0: later you kind of get into reflection when you've got yeah. the, you know, the moment something is happening, you got your adrenaline going, you got your focus going, you're trying to figure out what needs to be done. It's kind of like being a, you know, a football coach. You yeah. know, teams out there, you're yeah, on I the check. goal line, you're about to get in, you're looking all around. Well, you know, how do we manage the defense? Where, where do we position our guys? You know, what's the best play for the situation? So it's, you know, like when Pablo was going down, we're watching all this. We got all of these things going there. You know, there's a whole bunch of moving parts at the same time. right? And you're trying to monitor each of those moving parts. And you're trying to make sure they all get together at the right point and the right focus to get what you need to do. And suddenly, bam, there it's happened. You know, that's it. It's only later you kind of think, wow like the sergeant told me this is, this is some shit.
3: Yeah.
2: And <laughs> all of this, is there one of those moments where, where you kind of, if you could reflect back and say, Hey, where you were in the moment, you're like, shit, man, I didn't think I was gonna pull that one out.
0: Well, I probably sue you all. You know, I, I'm on, I'm working on my 12th M 16 magazine, you know, these little people coming at me and you know, it's just constant adrenaline. You're doing your thing. You're, you know, Fire, release, empty the magazine, jam in a new magazine, fire, keep on going, and you sub. You know, you think, you know, how much longer can I do this? You know, this. You know, it's just you. You understand that life is karmic, and that something yeah. is going to happen. It's going to happen. There's nothing you can do to control it, so don't worry about it because you can't manage it. Just focus on what you need to do, and nature will take care of itself. I don't, know that, I don't know if that answers your question or not.
2: Hell, that, well, it does. It actually answers the next one, too. I was like, hey, if you could, if you could leave us with some advice. Like all this that you've gone through and keep stacking it up. And I know in the reflection phase, even right now, it's tough. But for, for everyone listening out here, all that you've been through and you, that you put together and that you learned, can you drop us a, a little
0: piece of wisdom? Words of wisdom. Uh, do your best when you have a chance to do something. I mean, that's, that's all I can really say. I mean, uh, most people aren't able to plan for what their the issues of their future really bring. You just have to be prepared to do what the best that you can when nature gives you an opportunity. Be good to people. You know, people is what makes things work. It's ultimately the only thing that really counts. It's like family. Uh you got to pay attention to people around you. Uh, rank is not important. Production is. Uh, the quality of the person is what comes through. Uh, and if there's any one thing I could say is that simply uh, do the best you can when you have a chance to do it, because you may not get another chance. And this may be really important, uh, not only for you, but, you know, for the people around you, you know, or for the country as a whole. Uh, These things come to you in time. They don't come to you at the moment it occurs. So you just have to basically be yourself and be honest with yourself and do the best you can, regardless of the circumstances.
3: So, (laughs) but there's so much that I know Marcus wants to ask and I do, we're, Unfortunately, on a time constraint, so we're trying to uh, cut to some things. Um, what when you wrote your book, what year was that? and what how did you figure out what to put in there? Did you include which, everything? Which
0: book are you speaking of? The
3: Phoenix Rising.
0: Phoenix Rising, uh, I, I mentioned to you that I was the gopher uh, yeah. in the organization. Uh, I kept kind of a journal. Uh, but it was more of kind of call it essays, if you would, mm-hmm. because it was a cathartic to me. I'd come home and I would something would have happened during the day or an issue a personality. And I just didn't write about it. And that, kind of, that was kind of my uh, evening cocktail, if you would, to uh, de-stress. And so I collected these, obviously, over the time of the operation. And then later we had this hugely stressful event of the construction of these special ops forces after the rescue and all the fighting that we had to do with the institutions and the bureaucracy to get this stuff done. Uh, Great frustration. But I kept a lot of the the notes and all that I wasn't supposed to keep. I kept-
2: (laughs) I did that too. Yeah.
0: (laughs) uh, And then so- you know, as time goes on, uh, Special Ops became what I call a self-licking ice cream cone. You know, it was wonderful and shiny and everybody thought it was the greatest thing in the world and, you know, all that good stuff. Well, I remember what it was like before. And so I said, hey, we need to get a little truth and the lending here. And so I just put together my journal uh, comments as part one, which was how we got through the rescue and all of the background to that. And then part two was the fight to actually create the forces everybody now loved. You know, it was the bin Laden thing, desert ah, one yeah, to right. Osama bin Laden. How did we get there? Well, the book is simply an attempt to depict as factually as possible what actually occurred that created the capability to get bin Laden. So, you know, that's basically how I clues the book together. The Vietnam book was much easier. Uh, I wrote that over the course of three weekends. Very little editing. What you read in that book is basically what just came off of my, uh, at that time, k computer.
3: <laughs> wow. Are those the only two books that you have?
0: Uh, no. I have another book self-published on Amazon called Reflections. Uh, which is a whole series of essays uh, of the various that I wrote about various campaigns I had been associated with and Normandy, which was kind of my obsession. Uh, That's on Amazon. And there's another book coming out in February uh, called uh, Normandy, The Faces Behind the Facts.
3: That was going to be my next question.
0: the human face of D-Day, uh, which is uh, a discussion of Normandy uh, with the vets' comments to me that I picked up over all of my long periods with them, from the generals down to the privates. You know, why was Normandy selected? Why was this beach selected? Yeah. What actually occurred at this location? With the vets' comments to me uh, at at each of those sites. Uh, that's coming out, like I said, in favor. Oh, that's
2: the best, because that puts the spice. That's like putting the spice inside the, the, the commentary is the best, especially when you have the, from a private to a general, because what comes out of their mouth in a, in a similar situation, and actually in the exact situation, is two different things.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and and that's where you find it. That, that's, that's awesome. One of the things you find, I found with the vets, which was true in my own experience, is that you could put four people on the same battle site fighting the same fight. They're less than 20 meters apart, and they got four different views of what actually occurred. How about and that? Every one of them is absolutely true. Absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, if you put it's like off your bridge. I mean, I got Gavin telling us this happened, and I got Private Schmuckatelli telling us this is what happened. Yeah, and neither one of them have any idea what the other was doing. But you put it all together, you get the picture.
2: That's how you get your angles. Yeah, you could tell how 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 obtuse their angle was by by that.
3: I'm so glad that you're doing that. That was going to be my next question when you were talking. Is are you going to do something about Normandy? Because hearing those stories, I mean, you were put in in a priceless position to be able to soak up all of those stories. And for you to actually put it on paper is really incredible.
0: Well, yeah, it's like I said, it's an obsession. And I'm an old guy, I got time on my hands, so I want to do it, you know. You know, old folks always look for legacy. Well, you know, my my legacy, if I have one, is the bridge between what the vets said and what the active duty see and they appreciate, you know, and they they get it. My idea has always been that, you know, let's take we take the 82nd guys today and they're uh, walking at Lafayette Bridge and they got a couple vets talking to them. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, when that active duty troop is in some dark place somewhere and, you know, the world's coming to an end, he's going to think about what that vet did at Lafayette Bridge and he's going to say, hey, if he can do it, I can do it. Yeah. And it's going to give him a little additional Uh, you know, oomph in his core, and he's going to do what needs to be done.
3: Yeah, for sure. We interviewed a a young kid, like 24, 25, a couple of weeks ago, and his mission is to basically document all of the existing World War II veteran stories, uh, combat World War II veteran stories. And he's going around the country with his camera crew and just doing a video documentary and all he's doing with it right now is just giving that video to the family of that veteran because a lot of times they won't just yeah. strike up the conversation and talk about it so um i think mean, we need to, actually he went to normandy didn't he, he yeah, oh, yeah he said he went to normandy he's I love when, you know, legacy continues through other people. So we really appreciate you for doing that and for your own service. Golly. I mean, that's
1: unbelievable. Yeah. So what can we do to support you? Do you have a a place we can, do you have a website or a place we can promote you?
0: Uh, I don't have a website. No, Uh, I, I am on Facebook uh, and LinkedIn. Uh, And other than that, I'm, you know, just, just my books on Amazon you know, buy, buy a couple cases and write glowing five-star reviews,
3: you know?
0: <laughs> Absolutely. We yeah. might
3: have to buy we'll a couple of cases and send them to you to autograph them so we can send them happy, out.
0: Happy to do so. Yeah, this yeah.
2: is called the Nightingale present. I was like, if I find anybody who's slacking i be like, Whoosh. Yeah,
3: we would love to support you and uh, we'll definitely spread the word about your books and...
0: Thank you again for doing well, this. We, we, now, now you did mention that. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to give, can I plug here? Yeah, Absolutely. plug, yep. Uh, Normandy Institute uh, is a, or a, a U.S. Uh, 501 3C, uh, and it's based actually in Normandy, uh, Chateau Berneville. and its job is to provide an educational outlet for anybody interested in Normandy. Uh, it's got a big library. Uh, the uh, CEO Dorothea De La Huse, uh has been uh, sponsoring and managing a number of films. The latest one is actually a documentary taken of me doing the staff rides last year. Uh, we're turning that into a probably a one hour documentary. And we're searching for funds now to do that. Uh, and what we hope to do is go on, uh, put it together. Henry Roosevelt, uh, who did an award-winning documentary called The 6th of June, uh, is doing it. And he's going to amalgamate my staff rides with interviews he's done of the vets over time uh, and come up with like a one-hour documentary for the History Channel and for for maybe the Military Channel. But we're searching for bucks now. So if anybody wants to donate, go to the Normandy Institute and you'll see the film donation button there. And just you know, mortgage the ranch and you know, shovel <laughs> in money as fast <laughs> as you can get it. Yeah.
3: Well, we'll definitely share that. So that's that my plug. I love it. Yes, sir. Well, Marcus and I might show up in Normandy next year.
0: Hey, well, this, uh, this uh, join us. I, ironically, uh, a m- number of my family is going to be there for the first time. And uh, we'll be there from about the 1st through the 7th of June. Okay. Uh, St. Mary Glees is the core. So if you show up, I will be happy to have you join our crowd.
3: Oh, we would love that. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and the story of all the guys at Normandy.
2: Happy New Year, and thank you for your service. My keep pleasure
0: any time. Keep living your life.
2: Yes.
1: <laughs> all right. Thank bye. you, sir. Thank you. Airborne.